Hi Triber, we're back for the next season. Smart Girl Tribe has grown to become the UK's number one female empowerment organisation. We have an event series, a digital magazine, a membership platform and this podcast. What can you expect from us? Interviews from women all over the world who are driving change and pushing the needle forward. From actors to activists, to CEOs and conflict photographers, to the brains behind some of the world's largest corporations. When you're not tuned in every Wednesday at 6pm, then make sure you're chatting to fellow unapologetically ambitious women in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or sharing our ever so inspirational content on Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe. Hello Tribers, happy Wednesday. We are back with a brand new podcast episode. At Smart Girl Tribe, we have a responsibility to represent every young girl, to ensure that every voice is being heard. As a white feminist, it was hugely insightful to meet our next guest, Rahila Gupta. Rahila is a member and manages South Hall Black Sisters, a leading Asian women's group in London, which has spearheaded high-profile campaigns on domestic violence. She is a writer for The Guardian. Her books include Enslaved, The New British Slavery and Provoked. We talk about radical feminism in the 1980s and what it was really like to be at the forefront of it. The relationship between racism and feminism. Rahila shares why, as white women, we should be questioning and challenging the hijab. We ask if, as a society, we really are getting offended way too much. The Me Too movement and so much more. We really dive in deep here and ask a lot of questions that we have to admit we're all just too afraid to ask. Now, first of all, I just want to say a huge thank you for coming onto the podcast. I no, listened, that's, you're welcome. Yeah, I listened to you at the Women for Women event, and I just knew that we would have to work together somehow. I just loved everything you were talking about, so I'm so pleased that finally an opportunity has presented itself. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for agreeing to be no, interviewed. So going back to the very beginning, Rahila, you were obviously born in England and then you moved to India, where I believe your parents are from originally, and then you came back. Can you tell our listeners what that process was like back then, the year that it was happening? Okay. Well, um, I can't tell you about my first journey, which I made at the age of five months. Um, except for the family stories that uh, were, you know, handed down to me. So my mother and father said that I was an unplanned baby and they had things to do. My mother wanted to go on a diploma course for tailoring and uh, their travel plans, etc. So um, they decided to send me back. I think more my father than my mother decided to send me back to be looked after by her older sister, um, and my mother was anxious about me going back uh, right until the day I left. Apparently, my uncle took me and he'd never carried a baby before. So he held me like a pillow uh, <laughs> uh, under his arm, armpit kind of thing with my head and my legs sticking out. My mother had to run in after him into the immigration section at London Airport to say, that's not how you carry a child. Anyway, so I've got all these stories about how I was taken back at the age of five months, and then my parents turned up about a year and a bit later, um, and um, apparently I didn't go to them at first because I didn't know who they were, um, and she tried to, my mother attracted me with a walkie-talkie doll, and then I went to them, so that's, that's kind of the story, the history of uh, my return to India. 
And then um, I, I came here again at the age of 11 um, for two years. And that was quite an interesting experience for me. And I remember it quite clearly. Uh, interesting because schooling system was so different between here and there. Um, when I got here, I was really amazed by how much your imagination is allowed to wander free as opposed to in India it's kind of nailed down and you know your your story writing or essay writing is around my day at the beach or my day in hospital neither of which you might have experienced whereas here your English literature classes were or English language classes had you know posters up on the wall and you wandered around for an hour deciding what pictures you wanted to write a story about uh, which was so kind of liberating for the imagination. But of course, when I went back, because in India we have the old colonial Victorian uh, British education, um, and so um, they had already started studying Shakespeare, and we hadn't even got to Shakespeare in Britain. Uh, my vocabulary was really poor, although I'd been in Britain, you know, the home of the mm -hmm. English language. Um, so, yeah, so it was quite disorientating as well um, because the there were such big differences in the educational system. So I went back at 13 and then I did my, my first degree in India and I came back at the age of 19 and I've been here more or less uh, continuously since then. So how long was it before then you joined or you came to join the South Hall Black Sisters? And I'm also really curious to know being a feminist obviously myself what did being a feminist look like back then okay so um the so in uh 1982 so basically south of black sisters was founded in 79 uh by a group of women who then went into academia and kind of uh drifted away from uh sps and so the second a lot of women, i.e. Pragna Patel, who is still with us, um, who kind of, I suppose, is a kind of founder member, although it's like SPS phase two. Um, she came in in 1981 and tried to revive an organization which um, had was kind of um, languishing, I suppose. So she applied for funds and she got a center going, etc. I was working in South Hall. Uh, I was editing a magazine for uh, young people um, at an organization called Shakti. Uh, and, or the magazine was called Shakti and the organization that produced it was called the National Association for Asian Youth. And um, I tell the story to Pragna, uh, who doesn't remember it, but she kind of doorstepped me, you know, and said, come and join South Hall Black Sisters. We need young women like yourself. And I said to her rather grandly, oh, I didn't want to do anything that would split the anti-racist movement. So, so that, that, that story really illustrates the, the fact that I didn't understand intersectionality. Um, and to this day, actually, there are large numbers of black women who can fight on the anti-racist front, um, who might call themselves feminists, but don't understand how the two things intersect. Um, and so, and I think I didn't understand how the two things intersected. And I just felt that by joining 
a feminist group, an Asian feminist group, um, we would be uh, obviously critiquing men, and therefore we would be weakening the anti-racist movement. Um, and so I didn't, so I was 82, and I didn't join South of Black Sisters at that point, but I went on to become a member of a feminist uh, newspaper which was produced monthly, which was called Outright, which was like the poor sister, the smaller, the younger sister of spare rib, if you like. And that was, it called itself an anti-racist, anti-imperialist feminist newspaper. And I think that's where my understanding of feminism began to grow. Um, and that was a group of uh, mostly lesbians. I think I was probably the only heterosexual, maybe one other woman, you know, two heterosexual women. Um, and that was quite a learning curve for me to be in a minority, in mm -hmm. a sense. Um, uh, you know, so, yeah, so I kind of um, uh, was parachuted into a feminist newspaper when my feminist politics really weren't very highly developed at all. And as a member of Outright, I used to go and cover South Hall Black Sisters campaigns. So that's how I got to know them more intimately and to have discussions about, you know, um, what the fight against domestic violence looks like um, in a black uh, community and how you make links with white women to make the connection that you know, uh, violence happens across all cultures and communities and races. And so the very first thing that I covered uh, for Outright was a, the very first march ever to be held in South Hall from one end to the other, where we, um, where I say we, uh, South Hall Black Sisters at that point, were protesting about the suicide of a young Asian woman with, with the slogan, they, they call it suicide, we call it murder, because there was evidence that there had been violence against this woman and that she was driven to commit suicide and therefore was it really suicide. So we actually, when you say what did um, feminism look like in those days, we um, borrowed um, the strategy of Indian women from India who would stand outside the home of the perpetrator of violence and shame them because the biggest thing within the Asian community was shame and it was usually the woman who had to be the carrier of shame and honor and here we were saying well actually it's the man and because it's his shame that he has been violent towards the woman it's not the woman's fault so we stood outside Krishna Sharma's home, or not here, her home, the, in, uh, the mm -hmm. home of her in-laws. And we chanted slogans, and some of the women were picked up by the police for a fray and breach of the peace and so on. Then we went and demonstrated outside the police station to get them released. So that was in 1984. And uh, so... For the next few years, until I joined South of Black Sisters in 1989, I used to go and cover various SBS campaigns for the newspaper, for Outright. Outright then came to an end in 1988. 
And really, you know, the 80s, um, in a sense, was a period of explosion of all sorts of groups who had uh, been defined as minorities for a variety of reasons. And this is very London-centric, by the way, because it was all thanks, really, to the GLC under Ken Livingstone, because he, um, had his policy was to fund various groups that had, that were beginning to, you know, sort of um, watch flex their muscles, if you like. So you'd have, you know, you had Sisters Against Disability, called SAD, appropriately. Um, and you had, you know, all sorts of, so I was also a member of the Asian Women Writers Collective. We too were funded by the GLC. So it was just like, an absolute kind of outburst of cultural, political activity. It was really exciting because there was a real buzz in the 80s. Then Mrs. Thatcher came in in 1979 and we began to fight a little bit like what we will expect to do now under Boris. Uh, and probably it was slightly better under Thatcher, actually. Um, is that um, we fought defensive battles and in the 90s we began to feel that feminism was falling away that um, the kind of support we had from women for our various campaigns um, you know in the early 90s so 91 when we had that major campaign around Kiranjit Aluwalia we had a lot of support from women across the board and then Two, three years later, when we were doing a similar thing for Zora Shah, we had hardly anybody turning up. So in the 90s, we were looking at the decade and despairing, thinking, is this the end of feminism? And then, I think, in the noughties, the early part of this century, um, it began again in 2004 and 2005 with organizations like the UK Feminista. I don't know what they're doing now an object, um, and so on and so forth. And so now we are, you know, in a period where uh, I think it's great to see the amount of feminist activism and revival of feminist ideas and pride in feminism, which I think in the 90s there was an embarrassment to, you wouldn't, you you know, <laughs> to call somebody a feminist without knowing if they were feminist might be seen as an abuse word, you know, a swear word kind of thing. So so we've been through that kind of a curve. Okay. Was what you were doing throughout the 70s and 80s considered quite radical at the time then? Oh, yes. And, and uh, I just correct you there, not 70s, because I wasn't uh, politically active in the 70s. So my journey begins in the 80s. Okay. Right? So throughout the um, 80s, it was still considered quite radical, what you were doing? Yes. Yes, I mean, you know, so through South of Black Sisters, we were uh, mainly at that point uh, campaigning around domestic violence. Um, and you would have, you know, police uh, quite openly not responding to a call for help from a woman. I mean, they still don't do it, but in those days it was far worse because they just say it's a domestic, which meant that it wasn't a criminal activity. There was no need for them to go into, you know, to, to pursue it. So that shift is a huge shift, right? To, yeah. to, to, it's so impossible. 
possible now to even think about why domestic violence shouldn't be seen as a crime. You, can, you sort of take it for granted. But in those days, it wasn't seen as a crime. It was like, this is something that's going on behind uh, closed doors. It's between a husband and a wife. You know, the husband is at um, liberty to control and discipline his woman. And it was really as kind of basic and crude as that. Then we had within the Asian community the whole idea of dishonor, which was even worse than in the white community. There was some of that in, in the white community too, but certainly in the Asian community that was very sort of, you know, uh, embarrassing to come out into the public. It still is. I mean, it's all about degrees. It's all about, I think there's been, you know, huge shifts. And then um, the other thing that, um, uh, this is uh, partly about intersectionality as well, understanding how you um, are both feminist and anti-racist at the same time, because you are confronted every day with new realities. So, so to give you an example, we might have a woman come to us saying that she's facing violence from her husband, he doesn't have the right to remain in this country because he's an Indian citizen. He's come on the strength of being married to her. She wants to write a letter to the Home Office to revoke his citizen, or not even not as he doesn't have citizen to to get him deported. Basically, we wouldn't do that, right? We would not do that because we feel that the immigration laws are racist, and so we would not use a racist law to get a guy who's been violent, we would say to the woman, we will help you escape, we will help you leave the relationship, we will, you know, take care of all the issues that arise from it, you know, new schools for your children, you know, all of that, safety, security, all of that, we are not going to help you write that letter to get him deported. So, so that's, that was kind of quite novel. I mean, even today, I think, you know, people might not quite have that nuance in the way in which you approach something. Um, another issue would be that social services, for example, would not support us if a young woman came to us and said, look, my parents are forcing me into marriage, I don't want to get married, can you help? Um, we couldn't find a hostel place for a 16, 17-year-old, and the social services did not want to get involved because they said, this is your culture, and we said no. This, you know, violence against women is not anybody's culture, you know. Um, that's racist. They thought to intervene was racist. We were saying not to intervene is racist, you know. So those are the kinds of developments in policy and thinking. So now, social service, I mean, we've now, and over the years, we've, you know, produced, um, uh, well, we've been responsible for drafting the uh, Civil uh, Forced Marriages Act, you know, we, we were responsible for bringing that in. Um, and that allows young women to uh, get injunctions so that uh, preventing their parents from taking them abroad to get married or from taking any action again, you know, that would mean that uh, the young woman was trapped in a situation. So that's the extent of the shift that's taken place in terms of state policy and in terms of how, how you think about racism, multiculturalism, how do you, um, you know, deal with the minority communities? Do you listen to the men who, and that was the other issue, 
because it was the men who had become self-appointed leaders of um, our communities who would, you know, negotiate what they thought was the kind of policy that they needed from the government to get them get government to then listen to the disempowered voices within the disempowered communities because we were the others other if you like okay. that too was a big shift so yeah i don't did know you, if that did you possible. think back then when you first became politically active and you started exploring feminism did you think that south hall black systems would achieve everything that it has did you have did you all collectively have this vision or did you just take it step by step year by year i think the latter there's one doesn't have a vision about these things because you don't know what's going to be thrown at you you know so we all our campaigns have arisen out of our casework so we run this advocacy service and if we find that woman after woman is coming with a similar issue. So, for example, a lot of our women who were not just facing domestic violence, but their immigration status in this country was insecure, which meant that they couldn't leave a violent marriage without facing deportation. Mm-hmm. That, that being faced with that issue, realizing we can't deal with it on a case-by-case basis, we have to have a campaign to change the law so that all women in that position would, um, you know, be able to escape a violent marriage. That was presented to us at that point, and we had a response to it, and we said, abolish this. It used to be known as the one-year rule. Abolish it. We've spent 20 years, you know, getting that shifted. And it's shifted in a two steps forward and one step back, or if you want to be critical, the other way around, one step forward and two steps back, because we got domestic violence concessions that these should these women who were who had come to this country and were married into a violent situation, if they could provide evidence of domestic violence, they should be allowed to remain in this country. We got those concessions, but then the one-year rule, which was the kind of probation period that you were supposed to remain married for before you were allowed to apply for the right to remain, that was extended to two years. So that affected all marriages because even even marriages where there were no issues uh, of violence, those people also had to wait uh, for two years before they could regularize their status. And then when we got further concessions, they pushed it to five years. So today we have a situation where uh, marriage to a foreign spouse, a non-British spouse, means that they have to live in this country for five years before they can, and that means not being able to apply for any benefits, etc., for five years. So can you see that mm-hmm. we helped women in terms of uh, the domestic violence issues but then the whole community was affected by the way in which the immigration laws were made more draconian. No, absolutely. No, I completely understand completely. It's um, it's so insightful to, and I feel very honoured, if that's the right word, to be able to have such an open and honest conversation with you because you read about these things and if you're informed if you like then you read newspapers and things like this but actually having such an an honest conversation about it and talking through 
this almost marriage between feminism and racism I find very insightful now I know a lot of our listeners are going to want me to ask this how can they get involved now in the organization well that's a little bit of an issue because we don't have a kind of membership uh, policy or you know we don't have the capacity really so um, I guess you know when we have a campaign uh, when we have a demonstration, it's always wonderful if we can get support and people turn up in their numbers. The bigger the number of women at a particular demonstration, the more likely it's uh, to be noted by the media. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get involved as volunteers, but then there's a limit to you know how many volunteers we can have. But we do now have a program for volunteers. You can get involved as apply for jobs at uh, Southall Black Sisters, which is, you know, advertised through our Twitter account and through our website and so on and so forth. So those are the many different ways in which, you know, you can get involved. And I think, um, uh, I, I guess if you were to email, you know, info at Southall Black Sisters and say, I'd like to be involved or I'd like to be put on your mailing list, then every time we have an event or we have a political meeting, you know, then people can turn up for that. So, yeah, I guess those are the ways in which... No, that's great. And can I ask, what is one thing, Rahila, that you would want our readers to know about South Hall Black Sisters? That's a really difficult question. Um, uh, I would say the thing that we have been um, fighting uh, almost um, a lonely battle, I guess, and therefore uh, uh, it would be good for more people to know about that, is the the battle against religious fundamentalism, um, because that's been a very big problem for our women, um, you know, because when religion is on the rise, then all the sort of cultural norms which look to often to the religious books for very for kind of reinforcement of the cultural norm, all of those become much more rigid and much more difficult. And I think that um, a lot of white feminists are unable to challenge the more uh, sort of um, the, the growing religious trends within the black community. So, for example, you know, I feel, we feel, we're a secular organization. And for us, secularism means, you know, women of all uh, and none faiths should be, you know, and are part of our organization. But as part of that, we would say, for example, challenge the wearing of the hijab. Um, but I have been to meetings where when I've challenged the hijab and I come off the platform, some white women will come to me and say, oh, I'm so glad that you raised it because I don't know how to raise it because it would, could be seen as racist. So I think, I think there is this whole kind of growth of identity politics, which is really dangerous and difficult to deal with because it is who is... In, in, I feel one of the things that we had in the 80s was we would challenge people on the basis of their politics, not on the basis of their identity. So 
today there is this thing about can you be critical of prostitution if you've never been a sex worker and i would say yes you do not have to be it does not make you an authentic voice that you are a sex worker and therefore you can have a position on the sex industry because even among sex workers there is a huge difference there are prostituted women who uh, think that the industry is dangerous and damaging who have left the industry and then there are others who are within it so that's a very um, long slightly sort of gone off at a tangent but if you can see the point that i'm making that we should be able to without being muslim uh challenge uh, uh what the hijab means for feminism you know um and not feel oh we can't talk about it because it might be racist so would you say that the new wave of feminism it's not so much questioning it's not so much questioning their identity because obviously people have the right to choose whatever identity they identify with mm-hmm. but it's to have the space to have that discussion as to what that choice means for women as a whole so for example if you we were talking about the hijab I, i wrote a piece for the guardian many years ago saying that it was a piece of cloth that came soaked in blood and the reason why i said that was because there are women in iran and afghanistan and pakistan who are fighting for the right not to wear the hijab and have had acid thrown in their faces so the muslim women in the west need to take that on board that their sisters in the in other parts of the world are fighting the you know a really uh, violent battle um not to wear the hijab and to recognize that they have the right to wear that choice in in mm-hmm. but you know that so it's it's the, and the same thing since we've talked about prostitution and sex work that i should be able to say what i what i feel the choice of uh prostitution as an occupation means for all women you know in terms of their sexual objectification that's the discussion you can no longer have because people get offended and that's the big difference between the feminism of i think of the 80s and feminism of today would you say today's feminism this almost new wave because of the me too movement for instance would you say it's as disruptive in a positive way as feminism was back in the 80s Yeah I mean I yeah I have a lot of respect for what young women are doing today um in terms of their political activism and you know interestingly something like the me too movement I, that's a slightly it's quite a middle class movement I mean if you if I if you think about the women who come to South Africa Black Sisters they've all um experienced the hurt but don't have won't recognize that label you know they're not they're not part of the me too movement but of course they've been sexually abused and so on um so i think uh you know that's th- that's really quite brave and courageous but there is a kind of an individualist strand in all of that and it's become a collective movement but it's still kind of fought very much on an individual ground i mean i i suppose that's not i'm not really being critical about that i actually think that it there's been a huge shift in awareness the kind of shift that we never as 
fought as individuals, even though we, you know, uh, felt that all of us faced inappropriate behavior from men um, and, you know, uh, didn't really um, raise our collective or individual voices against it in quite the same way that women are doing today. So, yeah, I do think that there is a, there's a shift in tolerance you know, what women are prepared to take on. And, and that's great, you know, that they, they're, not, they're not going to shrug off a hand on the knee as something innocent and playful, which in the past we might have done even if we felt uncomfortable about it. Mm-hmm. Because we felt like we couldn't even, we, weren't, we were fighting the battle of having violence accepted as something wrong and criminal behavior, that this felt like, you know, almost nothing, almost trivial. And it's not, uh, you know, so I'm not saying it is. So, but I think it's, but because we've had that shift on those issues, we can now then say, well, here's the spectrum. This is where it begins, you know, and this is where we've got to challenge it. So I think in that sense, um, yeah, I think what the young women of today are doing is, is great. Now, something we are really wary of at, smart girl tribe that we pride ourselves on is we aim to be very sensitive sensitive to everybody's story no matter what race or background political or economic stance and obviously you're very much I feel an expert in this field how can we be more because obviously smart girl tribe we tend to represent the everyday girl if you like so for instance i'm not going to discuss what having anxiety is like for a black woman because that's not my story and it's not my place to talk about that i feel from a personal point of view so how can we all when we are white feminists be more aware of our white privilege i feel that white privilege has become another idea form of identity politics okay. and and it's kind of become um, about social etiquette. Now the issue is of course there is such a thing as white privilege, of course we have racism, of course we have discrimination, but for me the political work that white privilege requires is to, you know, I don't know, turn up, you know, at a demonstration for more equality in jobs in the media, let's say. I'm just mm-hmm. throwing an example out, right? Yeah. That is how you do, you, you, you do the actual work to dismantle institutions and their uh, inherent uh, structures of discrimination. That, to me, is dismantling the system. White privilege, the way it's kind of played out in, the social, in social media, becomes... I don't know about brownie points and about you know who has the right to speak about what and it's really about everything is is rooted in who you are rather than what you do about being rather than doing and I think doing is the important thing you know um, so so and that's where you know this thing about so going back to our discussion on the hijab you might see it as an issue of white privilege not to raise the issue of the, of the hijab because who are you as a white woman 
to understand where a Muslim woman is located. But I don't, I, I, I think that's the shift that we've come to, which I think is the wrong, we've taken the wrong turning, you mm -hmm. know. It's about your, it's, a, it's about a certain degree of robustness. I think the women of today are less robust in that way, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you, you can't challenge their politics, or oh, you're, 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 you know, you're insulting me, I'm offended. This whole culture of offense is offense really kind of um, gets most older feminists. You just think, oh, for God's sake, just get on with it, you know. Yeah. You know, take it on the chin. You know, this, we're having a political discussion. This is what I think about politics of this, that, and the other. You come back and say, I disagree, you know, and fine, let's have a good political discussion about it. Don't say, oh, you, 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 you can't talk about that because you're not Muslim. That's what I find uh um, deeply, oh, I think dangerous, really. That's that's a, it's a form of identity politics. Wow, that's really it's really interesting to talk about this because again, I've been a I'm a motivational speaker as well, and I talk at a lot of schools and universities, and I've had a lot of women pull me up on that I'm not allowed to discuss certain things because I'm not Muslim, because I'm not Indian, because I'm not black. So it's really interesting kind of, for me, the first time to be talking to somebody who's saying, actually, it's dangerous for you to almost avoid these conversations. Yeah. I think it's yeah. really interesting. And to say that these women as well who are, you know, obviously wearing the hijab is a personal choice. Some will want to, some will not. But I think it's really fascinating to actually say, even as a white feminist, you still can have those discussions and acknowledge that there are so many women out there who don't want to be wearing it and that there are sisters and that we can fight for them as well. Yeah. Can I go off on a real tangent of to course. make that point to make that point even clearer? Please do. So so in uh, twenty sixteen I went to uh, a place in northern Syria called Rojava. Um, which where there is a women's revolution going on. And if we have time, I would really like to talk uh, a lot more about that. Um, and it's just, uh, it just blew me away because, you know, it's in the middle of war and all we could see on our television screens was the death and destruction of Syria. And we no idea that something as wonderful and as positive as a women's revolution was going on here. So now the... Uh, it's mostly Kurdish-led, but they are very uh, uh, ethnically inclusive. So they, there are Arabs there, there are Christians there. They want all of them to be part of the revolution to the extent that, although in that particular area the Kurds are in a majority, they're normally in a minority in the whole of Syria, and they are discriminated against like any minority anywhere else. But in the northern part, where this revolution is taking place, they're in a majority the Arabs who have discriminated against them are in a minority and the Christians are 10% of the population, right? Okay. But in Parliament, they have given, they have reserved places equally, i.e. the Kurds have given up their Kurdish majority voluntarily in order to be truly multi-ethnic and given the Arabs with whom they had this difficult relationship in the past, uh, because the Arabs were in a position of power and discriminated against Kurds, 
were given equal space and uh, uh, 30% in parliament. And the Christians, who only 10%, were given 30%, okay? That was the level of democracy. Now, that background is important because when I went to see a group of women who are a little bit like South Hall Black Sisters who deal with honor crimes and killings, they were, they were Kurdish women and they were quite happily... Um, or, or at least in an untroubled way, they're saying things like um, they have greater difficulties with Arab women, Arab culture and Arab communities far more backward, um, that they have polygamy much more widespread in Arab communities, and that you know Kurdish people are generally more progressive where women are concerned. I was taken aback by that because I know that in Britain, we would never, um, at least publicly, sort of say that Muslim women have um, more issues than Hindu women. It would be seen to be a really divisive way of looking at things. And I was, I, and I thought about that later, and I thought the reason why they were, there were two reasons that I came up with, which made me think that it was okay. There were Arab women, by the way, sitting in that group, and they were not offended by it. And okay. one was that they had set up a society which was truly inclusive, where, they, where Arabs were welcome. And therefore, it didn't feel like an assault on the Arab, on, to say, to the, say that the Arab community was more backward, that there was polygamy, there was all of this stuff, it was more difficult to reach mm -hmm. Arab women, didn't feel like a racist or a communalist comment because everything else in that society was about giving Arabs equal voice. So I think that's uh, one of the reasons that it was okay. And the second, I think, was because they were punching upwards because the Arabs had been in power. So it's easier for me as a black woman to be to say something that might be uh, insulting to a white woman because mm -hmm. I'm punching back upwards. Um, so it might have been those two things. So I think that it's that kind of context which makes us really sensitive because you don't want to say anything which attracts more racism against Muslim women because we know that there is more racism against Muslim women mm -hmm. at the moment or Muslim community. Yeah. So it's that. So it's, sorry, it's a long way to answer that question about how do you challenge different cultural uh, traditions. No, you know, this is good. This is really good. This is exactly what our readers want to be hearing on our podcast, What our, why our listeners subscribe. It's really to have these open, honest conversations with women who are on the ground driving change. That's why I started this whole podcast. So no, that's really, really good. And you said, Rahila, you also wanted to add something. You wanted to talk about something. Yeah, no, just, well, just basically um, that, you know, to talk a little bit more about the women's revolution. No, please do. Uh, so, so, you know, we've got, uh, they've got this sort of structure where every institution, where, whether it's a hospital or a court or a school or even the army, that they have a co-presidentship rule where every post has to be held by a man and a woman. Oh, wow. And, okay. Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah, I mean, well, for example, the the um, the route of Raqqa was sub such a big issue for people in the West mm -hmm. because you know ISIS was such a danger to uh, the whole world, and so we got to 
hear a little bit more about the fact that it was the Kurds who were fighting the good fight against ISIS. But did we know that it was a woman who led the battle against Raqqa, which was a major battle? Uh, not that I'm trying to glorify the mm -hmm. taking up of arms, but what I'm saying is that this is the level of equality right throughout the society. And so you begin at the neighborhood level. So you have a commune where, say, say it's, it's you know two streets in London, let's say, the equivalent of you have 200 families and they will elect representatives which have to be a man and a woman and then there will be committees so they'll say okay in our particular area we really have issues around education we need so there'll be a committee looking into education there'll be a committee looking they call it sometimes conflict resolution or a peace peace committee it often deals with domestic violence there'll be a committee to do with that committee to deal with services and then each of these is led by a man and a woman and the, and and there is 40% of each sex men and women and then 20% depending on who's available and they will then elect representatives to the next level to the city to the sort of municipality then the city then the region right up to the parliamentary level that's your mixed that's your mixed um, uh, movement, men and women. Mm -hmm. And then you have a women-only similar structure from ground up, which has the right of veto on any policies that the mainstream democratic structure has undertaken, which has an adverse effect on women. If they think, no, that will not be good for women, okay. they have the right to veto against their policies. So within... I went in 2016 and the women's ministry was set up in 2014. They had, in four, two years, a massive legislative assault. They had uh, uh, abolished polygamy. They had criminalized uh, forced marriage, child marriage. You know, um, a woman, uh, they abandoned, disbanded uh, Sharia courts, which we have in Britain, by the way. Mm -hmm. We have Sharia courts in Britain, but they disbanded it. So the level of equality legislative equality and other and then they they make sure that they run education classes for everybody in society for them to understand the meaning of patriarchy to understand the meaning of democracy to understand the meaning of capitalism why we need and so it's and it's also very ecologically sustainable so you know um, it's just like the most amazing place and we don't know anything about it because, and I really think there's a media conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it would be so, it's so inspiring. It's such an inspiring place for us and for what we're doing here. It is pretty amazing because to think that that's going on and you're completely right when you say about thinking about media conspiracies because, no, we haven't heard of that and it is such an inspiring story. But it's interesting because when on our streets in Britain we're having these conversations about gender equality or just equality in general, everyone thinks, oh, that means the pay gap. And they yeah. just try and box it off as one thing that when we've sorted that out, every other issue will be resolved. But yeah. really, it's breaking those patriarchal barriers down and really reforming, rebuilding our societal structure, if you like. Yeah. So that's yeah. really interesting. Now, talking a little bit, Rahila, about your career, because your career as well 
is actually very inspiring. You are a freelance journalist. We have so many of our listeners who want to go into creative industries. You obviously, as you said, you've written an article or several, I should say, many, many for The Guardian, for instance. How can our listeners go about getting their articles in major publications? What does that process look like? Well, I think um, this is where the moment of time that we're in is a very different moment of time. I don't think journalism, journalism is on a downward trend. Um, There is uh, an explosion of blogs and websites which carry news and commentary for free. Uh, Paid journalism is really difficult to come by. So, so it's a very, um, it's a, it's a, there isn't a model, there isn't a, a model that allows new entrants into the field to make uh, a career out of it. Because what we are seeing more and more, particularly in the mainstream press, is that you've got a core uh, group of well-paid, uh, secure journalists and presumably they would go through the usual, you go to, you know, you get a degree in journalism, then you apply for the jobs that are available, and uh, hopefully you've done some voluntary journalism or regional or local, I mean, all the local papers are shutting down. I mean, it's like really, you know, impossible. And I think a lot of the new entrants today into journalism are people who've had successful blogs, their blogs have been noticed, uh, they've been picked up, and then they are sometimes invited to do a comment piece for The Guardian, or you know, and then that begins the process. I mean, for me, uh, I, uh, so I began, as I told you, editing a magazine uh, in the 80s, right? That, so that was, you could argue, was a funded um, charity job, mm-hmm. if you like, right? Um, outright with a political project, uh, but it was also funded by the GLC. So I could I could make an, a living out of it. Then because I had that as an as experience behind me, so I've never had a journalism qualification, um, and I've just been interested in the, you know the, in feminist politics and race politics and so on. And so that's kind of become my area of if you like. Um, and then uh, it just so happened that uh, The Guardian was beginning to open up to a greater diversity of voices, because that was the other problem in the 80s. These places were not open to us. They were not open to black women mm-hmm. or you know, black people in general. And, and even women, whatever color, had difficulties getting into these um, papers, but they were more likely, white women were more likely to get these jobs. If you're talking about white privilege, this is where white privilege comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I just happened to be around, and I pitched a couple of pieces to The Guardian. Uh, I, we had just published uh, South Hall Black Sisters um, uh, sort of anthology of essays, and I wrote to them on the back of that, uh, commenting on a particular piece of legislation that was being brought out saying this was the angle I wanted to adopt on it. And they liked it and they asked me to write. And then I pitched again and pitched again. And that went on for a few years. But now The Guardian has been not making money. 
and its comment section has been severely cut back. So they, they have, in the last couple of years, not accepted a single pitch. I've stopped pitching to the Guardian. Um, so, and so, and so you just, you, if you have, you need to have built up a history of articles. And today, I suppose the good thing is, because you can self-publish, uh, as opposed to in the old days, you would have had to have had a job with some regional newspaper or something. Mm-hmm. Now you can point to your blog, and if and then on the basis of that blog, you you pitch a piece to one of the mainstream papers, and they're all quite open in in theory. I.e., the email address is available, you know, for you to kind of get in touch with them. And the point is, um, I find that the more mainstream the piece the less likely you're going to get a look-in. Mm-hmm. It's a very fine balance because there'll be 10 people who will have pitched before you on some, let's say, um, on Harvey Weinstein, you know, the latest development on Harvey Weinstein. You'll have found at least there'll be people who write regularly for The Guardian who would have already pitched for it or one of their you know, commentators. So they won't take anything from you. But you... But you you have an, a fresh angle on the Me Too movement, which hasn't been covered in the mainstream press, mm-hmm. but it's, it's interesting and important enough for them to cover it, then they will take a piece from you. So it's, it's, it's that. It's kind of a judgment call, really, about the sorts of things they might be interested in, and you pitch it. I think you'd have to do a lot of writing for free in the beginning. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a good time for journalism. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, don't, I don't make a living as such from journalism. I mean, there are other things I have to do in order to make a living. So, Having written and published books, do you feel that that's a more positive industry to go into, being an author, if somebody wants to write? <laughs> no, it's all, it's, all, it's all complicated and all difficult. Today, the, some some publishers have even stopped paying in advance. Wow. Today. Okay, I didn't know this. Yeah. So, so um, uh, you know, for example, there's um, uh, a publisher of theatre plays, and uh, five years ago they would give an advance of five hundred pounds. Not that five hundred pounds would get you, you know, anywhere for any mm-hmm. t- for any length of time. And uh, that's come down, down, and down, and today they pay 200. Um, what is 200 pounds as an advance on a whole book, on a whole play? I mean, okay, the play presumably has been commissioned by some theater, and you might have, you know, been given money to write the play, so the 200 pounds is just jam on top. But I'm just giving you an idea of um, the level of advances. Mm-hmm. So it's all. But you see, but then what will happen is somebody will have an Instagram account with one million followers. Publishers will go to them and say, you know, will you write a book sharing your cosmetic tips with us or something and give you 10,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds, 30,000, whatever. So it's this very peculiar, unbalanced marketplace that we are in where uh, you could get in on the basis of your own initiatives, like setting up a blog that is really successful and has people have taken notice of mm-hmm. it. 
um, but hard grind, expertise, knowledge, political activism. You may get a publication deal out of it, but you're not going to get any money out of it, probably. Does that make you quite angry? Because a lot of the time you're surrounding yourself with domestic violence, you know, survivors, if you like. Is that hard then to know that there are now influencers out there and celebrities who are doing brand deals for millions of pounds or publishing books and being offered so much more than maybe somebody who's an expert? Does this make you angry or frustrated at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Of course. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, yeah, I mean... There's nothing more to say. It does make you angry and frustrated and all of those things. At the same time, I think um, I, lo- I, I love what I do. Mm-hmm. And so it does feel like a privilege as well to be able to do this, even though it's an uphill battle. You know, uh, you know, it's just fantastic when you get an email from out of the blue where somebody says, I read that book and it had this impact on me. And you think, my my work has impact you know that's that's a nice feeling it may not fill your stomach but it certainly fills your brain with a feeling of warmth Mm. (laughs) you know no i completely you're doing something that is worth it yeah Um, no i can completely relate to that absolutely (laughs) i really really can and i did say that you work alongside a lot of domestic violence survivors can i ask how you stay level-headed and you don't take those emotions with you every day or do you allow yourself to have space to let those emotions affect you see i don't do frontline work okay so i'm i'm on the management committee of south or black sisters so really that is about policy i mean just recently we published uh, uh just last month actually uh, a book called turning the page in which i worked you know, very closely with the women survivors mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, SBS, South of Black Sisters. And, uh, and they are, uh, and it is, it, it is tough. I mean, um, you just, I think um, there is a kind of therapeutic value to the stories and the weeping and the pain which the women were, you know, finding really difficult because they had to. They were. They wanted to write their life stories, um, even though they found it really painful. So I was with them through that process. But you know, it, it is. There is a kind of a healing that takes place because, you know, the women will weep. It's a group situation. There will be other women who will hug you and support you. They're in the same situation themselves. And once you have cried, you're in a different place again. You know, one of the one of the women said to me that she, when she was right, she, there were many a time that she wanted to give up. But she actually was so grateful that she stuck with it because mm-hmm. she has, she's, she, her life's been transformed uh, through the writing process, through kind of confronting what happened to her she's able to be less ashamed by it and to understand what place it has in her life. So, but yeah, I think you just, I mean, because I don't work with it on a daily basis, mm-hmm. it was, you know, I was running the workshops for 
two hours once a week, six months. It's not my daily reality. You can kind of, uh, it's okay. You can, you know. And I, I also think that it's really important to confront this. I, I, when there are women who say, or people who say, oh, I've stopped watching the news because I can't bear the violence. I think that is uh, an immoral position. Mm-hmm. The people who are suffering those events, if they can suffer it, we can certainly watch it, and we can certainly be, you know, part of the process of helping to shift that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And we were mentioning books and things. Can I ask what your essential reads would be for our yeah. readers and listeners? <laughs> I, I was yeah. I looked because I looked through your questions and I was thinking, oh gosh, well, <laughs> you know, there's so much that you'd want to, uh, and it's like, what do you leave out? And um, anyway, so I'll tell you the list that I came up with. Um, So uh, one of the first books I read, which uh, made me understand the whole uh, race and sex intersection was Ain't I a Woman by Bell Hooks. Um, So out of my list of five, I've got three black American women. So that's interesting in itself. I loved uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Um, you know, it's about slavery and, and how, how you survive that or not. Um, and the other one was Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis. And that too gave me a deeper understanding of that intersection. Um, the, the book that I read, fairly recently, which uh, really impressed me, which I hadn't actually heard of for, I mean, until very recently, I'm only about three, four years ago, um, is Caliban and the Witch by an mm-hmm. uh, Italian woman called Silvia Federici. And the reason why I think that's a really important book to read is because it looks at uh, the transition from feudalism to capitalism and how the disciplining of women and women's bodies and the burning of witches was very much a part of that shift, that transition from feudalism to capitalism. And why I think it's important today is I'm coming more and more to the uh, opinion that we are in a transitional phase, that capitalism is going to come to an end in the next 50, maybe 100 years maximum, mm-hmm. and that we, we, we will be shifting to something different because some of the logic, it's imploding. And what um, this book helped me do was to identify the kinds of trends that make a system implode. I'm not saying necessarily it will be replaced by something better because in fact when feudalism was imploding there were a lot of progressive groups who could have taken it in a different direction but they lost out and we went into uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. So, I think, so I think it's very useful for extrapolating knowledge about where we are today. And the other, the final one is uh, any of Uh, Arundhati Roy's political essays Um, I mean I just she writes beautifully and she writes in a way I remember the first political essay of hers I read was about uh, her campaign against a dam in India which would displace hundreds of thousands of villagers 
And she wrote about it in such a way that I was in London, I wanted to fly out and be part of that um, mm. campaign. And mm -hmm. so she has a real uh, passion, elegance, fluency. Um, so any of her collections of political essays, and she's written several, um, the one that most recently that I read, it's quite an old one, the algebra of infinite justice. So I would say, yeah. Wow. Well, I've definitely written those down, so I'll be purchasing, purchasing them all later and reading them all, and I'll have to let you know how I've got on. Now, okay. finally, Rahila, can I ask, what is the mantra you live by or your favourite quote? I love to finish every episode asking this, so whenever you're ready. Okay, well, that's another black American woman that I owe this quote to, and that's Alice Walker. And Alice Walker said that, I'm paraphrasing, I might not have got it right, mm -hmm. activism is the rent I pay to, for living on this planet. Oh my gosh, that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, being an activist, I can completely relate and understand that one. No, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Rahila, again. Thank thank you. It really is. Um, it's a privilege to be able to have such an open and honest conversation with you and also have quite a different perspective. I know this is an episode our readers and our listeners will love. So thank you so much again. And I will speak to you soon. All right. Lovely. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye-bye.